street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Okay, so this talk uh, serves as an introduction to street epistemology. Uh, this is a talk that I've given now twice, once to the Diversity Club on the ICC campus and a second time to the Univer Unitarian Universalist congregation in Tupelo. And I decided to introduce street epistemology in the context of It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which I watched this past fall with my children. Uh, for the first time in probably about 40 years, it's been a long time since I've watched it, and as I was watching, I couldn't believe what I was watching, to be honest with you. Um, I couldn't believe that such subversive television was uh, ever aired in the first place, and, uh, and that it continues to be heralded as a classic of uh, TV cartoons. So anyway, I thought it would be a great way of applying street epistemology. I wondered, if, could I apply some of the techniques of street epistemology to this particular cartoon. And notice that Charlie Brown is saying, why, 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 why? And that's uh, rather significant, which I'll explain in a few slides. But first, I want you to actually watch a bit of conversation between Linus and Charlie Brown. So the next several slides just kind of go back and forth with a few video clips, and then we'll kind of break it down. Okay, so I assume that you saw, watched that little exchange and hopefully decided that it wasn't a very productive exchange. And the question is, why did it go nowhere? Can we break it down and, and analyze where the wheels fell off? Um, well, first of all, in my opinion, each character, um, when they heard a belief that did not align with his own beliefs, immediately attacked what the other believed. For example, Charlie Brown starts out with, you must be crazy. <laughs> he hears about the Great Pumpkin and he says, you must be crazy. That's never a, a, a good way to start a productive conversation. Um, and you know, so notice that they were, Charlie Brown was immediately kind of in the attack mode. He never stepped back and tried to find out in a non-judgmental fashion why Linus believed the things that he did. So Charlie Brown leads with, you must be crazy. Linus never answers the question about when are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? Yeah, which is a valid question. Could have been phrased more properly, but certainly did not hit its mark because it was prefaced by, you must be crazy. So instead of answering the question, Linus then redirects. He lashes out and says, well, what, why, do you believe, why do you believe in Santa? So there's really not an attempt here at conversation. There's both just parallel attacks going on here. Then Charlie Brown essentially just bails on the conversation. He, he says, we have to, uh, we've got 
denominational differences. He essentially is saying, okay, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, or he's writing Linus off as being doxastically closed. And in my opinion, neither character learned very much of anything from the exchange. My contention in, the, in this talk is that street epistemology might be a better technique, a better avenue, a better way of pursuing a conversation with someone who holds strongly held beliefs. So what is street epistemology? Well, notice in the opening cartoon with Charlie Brown, it didn't say what, 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 what. It said why, 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 why. In fact, I think we could go one better and ask how, 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 how. Because that is the heart of street epistemology. It doesn't ask what a person believes. It asks how a person has arrived at the conclusion, as well as what methods are used to assess the truth of the belief. It's based on epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy that involves language. How do we know what we know? Where it differs from traditional or more academic epistemology is that it really does take it to the streets. It has conversations with people based on Socratic dialogue, where the main driver of the conversation is questioning. The goal of street epistemology is to find out how strongly held beliefs are arrived at and how their truth is assessed. Hopefully in the process, helping a person become more self-reflective regarding strongly held beliefs. So the next question is, can we apply some of these street epistemology techniques to Charlie Brown's conversation with Linus? What could he have done differently instead of immediately lashing out with, you must be crazy? What could he have said in response to Linus's assertion that the Great Pumpkin was coming that evening? So Linus says, on Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air to bring toys to all the children. What could Charlie or Brown have said that could have been more constructive? He could have said, I'm not familiar with the Great Pumpkin, but would be interested in learning more. Would you be able to tell me how confident you are that the Great Pumpkin really exists? Can I propose a 0 to 100 scale, where 0 is total doubt and no confidence, and 100 is no doubt and all confidence for your belief that the Great Pumpkin exists? Of course, if you don't like the scale, feel free to propose another, or we can scrap it all together. In this case, Charlie Brown is actually, instead of immediately launching into you must be crazy and making a, uh, an assertion that Linus is incorrect, which no one likes to, to be told, hey, you're wrong, Charlie Brown is actually attempting to gain information from Linus. He's saying, hey, I'm not familiar with the Great Pumpkin, but I'm interested in learning more. I want to converse with you. I want to learn from you. So could you tell me how confident you are that the Great Pumpkin really exists? You say that he exists. How confident are you? So that's just a, this is kind of establishing a baseline, trying to, to feel out how strongly held is this belief. Okay, so continuing on in this fictional conversation, or my, my fictionalized version of a conversation between fictional characters, um, remember that Charlie Brown had just asked Linus how confident could he put it on in a scale. And then I, I showed you that that last uh, little clip just to show you that, you know, could give you a feel for how confident Linus is, as well as to show you that not only does Linus believe that the Great Pumpkin exists, but he also seems to think he has some knowledge about what 
about the Great Pumpkin's character. He knows something about the Great Pumpkin apart from just his own existence, that he has certain things that he likes, such as sincerity. So that's going to drive the next part of this conversation. So Linus, of course, would come back with, oh, I'm 100%. Great Pumpkin rises out of the pumpkin patch that he thinks is the most sincere. He's got to pick this one. He's got to, I don't see how a pumpkin patch can be more sincere than this one. You can look around and, and there's not a sign of hypocrisy. Nothing but sincerity as far as the eye can see. That's actually a, a quote from uh, the cartoon. So yeah, apart from the 100% part, um, Linus is pretty much all in in his belief. So Charlie Brown then responds with, okay, I think I understand, but let me rephrase so that I'm clear about what you're saying. You not only believe that the Great Pumpkin is real, but also that he values sincerity. Does that mean that your belief in the Great Pumpkin requires your confidence to be 100%? If it were not 100%, would the Great Pumpkin question your sincerity? If I'm mistaken, please correct me. I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is an important street epistemology technique. It's not only listening, but quite often rephrasing. After you've asked a question and you get a response, rephrase the response to make sure that you are not misinterpreting what the interviewee or the interlocutor is saying. So Charlie Brown rephrases the statement and also then tries to push a little bit on Linus because now Linus has claimed not only that the Great Pumpkin exists, but also that the Great Pumpkin values sincerity. But this inherently is a problem. So Charlie Brown is trying to figure this out. He's trying to say, does your belief that the Great, great, great Pumpkin exists, um, does it require that his confidence be 100? Because if he weren't completely 100% confident, then he would perhaps be an insincere believer. So there seems to be a little bit of a logical contradiction here that Charlie Brown is trying to push on a little bit. Okay, so continuing on. So Linus, if he's really honest, he might take a little bit of a pause at this point in the conversation because he may not have really considered that. It seems like his belief in the existence is contingent upon or is supported by the sincerity of his belief, but his belief's sincerity seems to be contingent upon his conviction that the Great Pumpkin really does exist. So um, there's kind of a tautology here. So and Charlie Brown, again, kind of pushes it. If your confidence in the existence of the Great Pumpkin is intertwined with the sincerity of your belief, is there any way to know whether the Great Pumpkin is really true? Is it accurate to put your confidence at the 100% level? So now he's not, he's giving Linus an out. He's giving him the option of at least decreasing his confidence. He doesn't have to abandon the belief in, in its entirety, but because of this logical inconsistency, does it really make sense to say that you're 100% confident? A, a rational and honest person would at least change their level of confidence at this point in the conversation. Now, Linus is not necessarily rational. Uh, he says, I'm not budging for my 100% confidence. And this is not uncommon when you're, ha when you're holding street epistemology conversations. This is not a debate. This is not a conversion. This is not something you're trying to win somebody over. You're just trying to make them think a little more about why they believe what they believe. And so Charlie Brown could come back with, okay, so accepting. He's not gonna, he's not twisting Linus's arm, but he might ask the very important question, is it a good thing to believe in things you can't know to be true? And maybe that's where he should have left the conversation. 
you may not even need to go on to, yet your confidence remains at 100. Are there other factors that contribute to your 100% confidence that we haven't explored yet? Can you give me your best example? He may just scrap all that. If, if Linus is that focused on his belief, Charlie Brown might be able to just say, just leave that, that last question. Is it a good thing to believe in things you can't know to be true? That is a good pebble in a shoe. Because most people don't want to believe in things that they can't know to be true. And so, again, he doesn't have to abandon his belief at that moment. But that should be a pebble in a shoe that Linus cannot think about uh, going forward. So the question is, was this a better conversation? Did we make more progress in this conversation versus the first one that you were presented with? Um, you know, in my opinion, yes, yes, we did. Um, Charlie Brown learned a little bit more about why Linus believes what he believes and why he appears to be so confident in his belief. I'm, I don't think that Charlie Brown is convinced that there is a great pumpkin at this point, but Charlie Brown should be open to the possibility of being convinced. Similarly, I think Linus um, learned a little bit. He became a little more self-aware, self, uh, self-reflective about why he believes what he believes. And that is, that's a gift that Charlie Brown has given him. We all should become more, more reflective about why we believe what we believe, especially for those things that we really seem to be very confident in and willing to take action in our lives based on our confidence. Um, that's, that's a very human thing to, to, for Charlie Brown to do. So anyway, um, was this a better conversation? I think so. Charlie Brown, first of all, instead of launching at Linus, tried to understand Linus. That's very important. The other important thing is that in a street epistemology conversation, especially when you start pushing a person who has closely held beliefs for their reasons, and these reasons don't seem to be as good as the person might wish them to be, they quite often will try to redirect the conversation and start going in other directions. So it is very important to stay on point. Rather than, go, rather than chasing down the Santa Claus uh, rabbit hole, it's important to, again, stay on point. And what about that last, that last thing in the original conversation we, um, where he said, uh, we've got uh, denominational differences. Is that okay? And we hear that quite a lot. And the question is, is that all right to just agree to disagree? A lot of folks think it is, and I'm not convinced that it is. So based on that last clip, you can tell that Linus is locked in on his belief. We would say that he is toxastically closed. Even if he was given evidence that the thing he believes in doesn't exist, he's still going to believe in that thing. Now, that seems pretty extreme and funny in this context, but we do face these people. These people do walk among us, and the question is, eh, should we just leave them be? They're not hurting anybody. Why should we care about somebody else's belief system? Well, this quote from J.T. Everhart speaks to that, because quite often, we just want to give people a pass. Can't we agree to disagree? No. What is morally true is dependent on what is actually true. If the God that a lot of religious people believe in actually exists, we probably shouldn't let gay people marry. 
I encourage you to check out Leviticus 2013 on that point. But it all hinges on whether or not that God exists. If people think, I'm right morally and we need to legislate on my morality, no one wants to say, but that God doesn't exist. We wind up frozen in our moral discourse. Can't we agree to disagree is an invitation to remain balkanized. Now, I think that street epistemology is one way to help people who think that they are right morally, who have religious certainty, to assess whether their certainty is well-founded. And it doesn't have to be religious belief. It can be any kind of belief. But if you strongly believe in something, the question is, how did you arrive at that belief? And how do you assess whether that belief is actually true? Okay, to close out the topic of why should we care about other people's beliefs, um, notice that last line in the previous slide that said, if I'm wrong, wouldn't I want to know about it? That ultimately is why we should care about what other people believe, because it's, a very, it's the compassionate and human thing to do. If I'm wrong, I would certainly want to know about it, and I would appreciate it if somebody would correct me. And so that is the driving force behind street epistemology. Now, it's very important to understand and keep in mind that street epistemology is a conversation. It is not a debate. You don't need to win at the cost of the other side losing. The goal is to make the interviewee or the interlocutor more self-reflective. If, if that's as far as you get, that's a win. You have won. If you've planted a, a, a seed or if you've put a pebble in a shoe, Sometime that, sometimes that's just going to have to suffice. The whole goal is to peel back rather than to pile on. You're not looking to, to show somebody up. And it must be a very genuine conversation. The, the SE practitioner must truly be interested in finding out why his or her interlocutor believes the things that he or she believes. This SE practitioner must also be prepared to be swayed if his interlocutor does indeed have compelling reasons for his or her belief systems. That's the thing. It's a two-way conversation in the sense that the interviewer could possibly be swayed if the interviewee has compelling reasons for their belief. Now, I do caution that sometimes you just have to stop. Sometimes you get to a point in the conversation when you realize, as you're peeling back these reasons for belief, that this person that you're interviewing needs to believe just to remain psychologically healthy. It's essentially a coping, coping mechanism. You don't want to kick that support out from under that person. 
So it's always very important to be mindful of that. Are you tired of getting stuck when discussing deep issues? Would you like to help people become more reflective and less dogmatic about their faith-based beliefs? Introducing Atheos. Learn to spot flaws in weak arguments. Explore countless resources from prominent skeptics. And practice cool conversation instead of heated debate. Atheos, your guide to a more reasonable world. Download today. This next series of slides is actually an example, an example conversation that uses the techniques of street epistemology. It's courtesy of a street epistemologist named Anthony Magnavasco. This is a guy who's been doing face-to-face -face conversations on camera for about three years now, and he has dozens and dozens of videos up on YouTube. So I strongly encourage you to check out his channel. You're going to see all kinds of videos involving different types of beliefs. It's not just religious all the time. Um, but he, he talks about different types of beliefs with different people with different levels of success. And so it's worth worth checking out his channel. Um, now, normally in a, in a live presentation, I just I play the video and I'll, I'll stop it at different points and interject when I see him using a technique that you can tell he's using street epistemology. In this setting, I'm going to stop the video and I'll put in a new, a new slide to have my comments. The first thing I'll tell you is that the first three and a half minutes or so of this video is essentially just rapport building. It's not even street epistemology. It's just he's, he's trying to have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone. He's trying to engage somebody in conversation and he just kind of gets to know them. He doesn't immediately launch into an interview. He doesn't want to make the person feel like they're being interrogated. He wants to put them at ease. And so the first three and a half minutes or so is just rapport building, but I still think it's important for you to see how he does it, how he puts his, his interlocutor uh, at ease and is quite friendly and very human to her. Hello. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you. How was your walk? Shorter than usual. Yeah. Yeah. Why was it shorter than usual? Uh, started getting a little dizzy, so I don't know. Do you have water? Yeah, I've got water, but okay. So I might just, but anyway, I don't know. Just usually, I I think I'm kind of out of shape today. Honestly, um, it's been a month or two since I've been hiking. Okay. <laughs> so I mean. That'll do it. Yeah. And it's actually getting quite hot the last probably 30 yeah. minutes. It's jumped up at least five degrees. So I decided to come down when I felt it getting hotter. I went up to, you know where the the trail splits to like the juniper? No, not juniper. Um, on a map I could show you, but you know where it goes from the main loop and then it splits to like uh, the trails. You can go there. further up and out. That right, one? Those, mm -hmm. Right where it splits. Water? I, is that called the water one? The water trail? No, I actually went up. Um, so you go up this way, then you go this way. The water trail is this way mm -hmm. on the main loop. You go this way and you keep going up, and it's quite a climb actually, but then um, there's a split. You can either keep going all the way around for the main loop, or you can go to the other trails up here, and that's where I just turned around. I was like, eh, that was too much today. Yeah. <laughs> I would normally ask if you would like to participate in a five-minute interview, but if you're dizzy, uh, I'd rather maybe get you some well, what water. What is it for? It's for a hobby that I have where I have short chats with strangers. Everyone has beliefs, and yeah. many people think that their beliefs are true. So mm -hmm. we pick one of them, yeah. 
and then I'll just ask questions to to test the methods you use to conclude that the belief is true. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You want to do it? Yeah, sure. Are you okay if I record it and live stream it? Uh, sure. I don't really care. What is this for? It's for I call it a hobby, but I've been doing it for about three years. Okay. And at the end of the talk, if you're not comfortable with it, I won't use the footage. I'll give you a card at the end. No, sure, why not? Okay. Thanks. What's your first name? My name's Katie. Hi, I'm Anthony. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure. Is it with a K? Yes. I-E? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, we can get in the shade. Yes. So, like, with all that being said... Oh, no, you'll just preface this. We could pick any topic you want. They tend to go supernatural, like mm -hmm. magic or ghosts or karma or God. Right, right. And I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm going to just ask questions. And okay. So it should be pretty All interesting. Right. Oh, what? is this on camera? Yeah. That's oh, okay. Lord. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I look like shit, but that's okay. That's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I could also blur your face or not use the footage. It's up to you. You can blur my face. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Katie, so... Okay, so as I mentioned, that first three and a half minutes or so was just rapport building. But even so, you know, Anthony is simply, he's just not fake. He offers her water, and he's really concerned for her as a human being. Let's talk about something you really think is true. That's a hard one, because... Um... Well, I'll tell you something I at least used to really believe was true, because um, lately I've been questioning it, but the only reason I've been questioning it is circumstances. And the thing is, I know true in my heart that it's, regardless of circumstances, it is, um, it really is true. So I believe in God. I believe there is a higher power out there. And the reason I believe that, there are actually a lot of reasons I believe that. Um, number one, you look around you. Um, first off, I don't really see how, um, all this just came to be out of a bang, you know, like, I understand people have these scientific beliefs and these theories about, you know, Big Bang or something just randomly happened and then evolution just kind of occurs naturally and stuff. And, I mean... I get where they're coming from, sort of, but not really, because all my life I've been taught one way, and then I like go to college, and then I'm taught another way, and so that's why I question it sometimes, because so many, so many things try to point me out of the direction of there's a God, but then I keep coming back to the realization that it, there has to be, because how you you even look at the human eye for example just the human eye there are so many different parts of the human eye how do they function so well and just it had to have been designed is what i conclude because i don't understand how that could have just oh look there it is and then it just evolved naturally on its own and notice what anthony has done here he is now, he gave her two minutes, a full two minutes, to allow her to choose the topic. She says she believes in God. 
and then he allows her to unpack that belief. She says, you know, look around you. I can't understand how this all could have come to be naturally. Just look at the human eye. She goes through several different examples, um, and he never challenges her any of her points. He just allows her to speak for two minutes. That's very, th that is very non-confrontational. Let me ask you a question. Okay. If the complexity of the, the human eye, mm -hmm. or any eye, could be explained to your satisfaction, or science is actually able to one day explain to your satisfaction how the universe started, for example. Right. Would you still believe in the God, or would that just bring you back mm -hmm. into the questioning phase? Okay, so finally now Anthony asks his first question. He says, if science could one day explain nature, for example, the complexity of the human eye or the origin of the universe, to her satisfaction, would she still hold the God belief? This is a very important question. This is a street epistemology question. Because what this question does is it helps to steer the conversation away from a point-by-point -point debate. Notice he didn't leap in uh, contradicting her claims about the human eye or about the origin of the universe. Because it turns out neither neither he nor she are cosmologists or evolutionary biologists. So neither one has great expertise in those fields. What Anthony's doing here is he's probing to see whether she is open to new evidence. So he's, he's proposing. He's, he doesn't promise that he has it, but he says if, hypothetically, if new evidence about the natural world um, were available, would she still hold her God belief? Because if new evidence about the natural world would not sway her God belief, then her belief is not really rooted in her ideas about the natural world. Because if they were, rationally, she would have to change her mind. But because she's not willing to change her mind, that tells you her belief is not really rooted in her ideas about the natural world. So therefore, there's no need to debate points on that topic. The conversation can move on to new ground. That is a good question. Um... Like I said, I've still been questioning here and there, but um, I kind of always come back to that. Um, I would probably still believe there was a God, honestly. So there must be another reason why you continue to hold on to the belief besides looking around and seeing trees and seeing complexity. Because also, I feel like there has been supernatural um, things in my life. I must say, I really like Katie's conversational style. She seems very genuine and honest. And that's very important when you're doing street epistemology is that not only do you want to have an interlocutor who is um, who strongly believes in something, but you also want somebody who is honest and is willing to, they're not putting on an act. They're not trying to answer, uh, give answers the way that they think their preacher would answer. They're not trying to give answers that they think that the interviewee or interviewer is would want to hear. She seems quite genuine. And I can tell this because she actually pauses at the beginning of this clip and acknowledges the strength of Anthony's question. She says, hey, that, that's a good question. You know, she's really being sincere and thoughtful here. And she admits that even in the face of new evidence about the natural world, she would still believe. And that's what Anthony was looking for because and actually, she goes on and moves ahead on her own. She she moves to personal experience. Um, so it does indeed show that her belief, her God belief, is not really hinged upon her ideas 
about the natural world. Give me your best example. Well, um, once I was hospitalized and uh, didn't think I was going to make it, and um, yes, yeah, science can, oh yeah, science did this, science did that, but I prayed to God that I would get better, and within a day I was pretty much better. So I felt like that was an answer to my prayer. Possibly, yeah, it could have been partly science, you know, it could have been mostly science, but, um, you know, with the doctors helping me and everything, but I feel like there was an element of something supernatural in that too, just that I felt like he was kind of holding my hand, you know, while I was going through that, you know. I don't know how better to answer that, except that there's been another time where I was in a car crash, I should have died, and I didn't. Um, wasn't even hurt. It was a flip over car wreck and I was going 75 down the highway, just flipped it over and literally I should have died in that wreck. I walked out of it. I was fine. They tried to take me to the hospital. They did take me to the hospital in an ambulance. I was like, I don't need this ambulance because <laughs> I just had like a um, seat belt burn on my chest and mm -hmm. that was it. Literally that was it. And uh, okay, so I, I felt like that was a miracle. Okay, so remember that she had just gone from the natural world thing to supernatural uh, events that have occurred to her. And so in reference to her supernatural claims, Anthony asks, can you give me your best example? Boy, that's such a good SE question. Because certainly extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. She has just claimed that something beyond the realm of the natural world, which she is so enthralled with, um, now, something supernatural, has that's the real reason for her belief. And that's a big claim and should demand extraordinary evidence. But Anthony finds a way to challenge this claim without seeming confrontational. He just says, hey, can you give me your best example? Can you tell me a story? And so she does. She gives her best example of supernatural personal experience, her recovery after hospitalization, as well as a car wreck. And... Notice that Anthony gives her plenty of time, and he patiently listens. This is about a minute and a half long clip. So he gives her plenty of time. He doesn't jump in to debunk her story. He doesn't challenge any of the points. He lets her tell her story. Thank you. So I've got two examples now where you've had horrible things happen. Right. Being hospitalized and then having a very serious car accident. Mm -hmm. And I'm really sorry that those things happened to you. That's okay. But you said something interesting that when you were in the hospital, you were surrounded by science, and then you made this prayer. But it sounded like you were saying it could have been the doctors, it could have been the medicine, it could have been it the treatment, been or it that. could have been the prayer. Yeah, it could have been either, really. And that's where I get to questioning again sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. About the car accident. That, I feel like, was a miracle. If we had statistics on the survival rate of rollover accidents mm. in your city, with your age, right. and, and all your attributes, and mm -hmm. the, the kind of car you were using, and the weather, mm. and all this stuff, and we found out that it was actually a pretty commonplace to survive it. Right. When we think about these experiences that you've had, are these the ones that keep you holding on to the belief, or is there something else? I think... 
Okay, there's a lot that goes on in this little section. Now, first of all, Anthony, he restates her personal experiences. And that's important. Again, he is showing that he is actively listening. Uh, he first talks about her hospitalization. And he mentions that even she acknowledges that while she attributes her recovery to a prayer she said in the hospital, her recovery, her recovery could have been due to science, the medicine and the doctors. And in fact, he doesn't even get the chance to follow up with another common SE question, which probably would have been along the lines of, if there is no way of telling which, meaning the prayer or doctors or medicine, which helped you get better, how can you be so confident that it was the prayer that made the difference? And in fact, she already anticipates uh, that question and essentially scraps the hospitalization scenario. She recognizes that that may, she doesn't really, she can't really attribute um, her prayer as being the real reason for her recovery. But she immediately interjects by saying that with regard to the car accident, I felt that, that like that was a miracle. So then Anthony comes back with, again, a very probing question. He says, if we had statistics about rollover accidents and found that survival is not really that uncommon, are your personal experiences what really keeps you in your God belief? And again, Anthony is probing. You know, if her miracle survival could have a more pedestrian explanation, would that affect her God belief? If not, it shows that her surviving the accident is not really the reason that she believes there is something else. And again, this is a good way, an excellent way of steering the conversation away from a debate about a personal experience to get to the root motivation for the belief. It's also that I was, well, I trusted in Jesus as my savior. And so because I did that when I was a child and I just kind of held on to that my entire life and even when I've doubted I always come back I always do and it just um, it's like when there's nobody to talk to it's like he's the one who will listen and yeah sometimes I'm like is he really listening because I don't hear anything you know but sometimes you just gotta trust and that's the whole thing that the Bible tells us to do is trust and you know um, I could quote a ton of scripture, but I'm not going to do that to you because I know you're not interested. <laughs> but um, anyway. So notice here that Katie is, she's pivoting again. She now moves on to kind of a combination of things. Upbringing, she mentions her upbringing, she mentions faith, and she mentions scripture. Actually, I don't think she says faith outright, but I think that's kind of what she's hinting at. She says, I trusted in Jesus as my savior, as a child, and held on to that her entire life. Sometimes you just got to trust, and that's the whole thing the Bible tells us to do. Can um, we talk about the trust that you have in Jesus? How do you know, Katie, that you're trusting in something that is actually real? Okay, so now notice that Anthony has been playing essentially whack-a-mole. Um, he's, we've already gone through the natural world. We've already gone through personal experience. And now she's moved on to upbringing and faith and scripture. Anthony, I think, knows that it is faith that is Katie's main reason for God belief. Notice he really doesn't get into upbringing or scripture. He, he go, he, once, once she kind of talks, she doesn't use faith explicitly. She doesn't define faith. But that's what she's hinting at. 
And he thinks that is really the, the main reason for her God belief. So he asks a very important question. He says, can we talk about the trust you have, that you have in Jesus? How do you know, Katie, that you are trusting in something that is actually real? Now, notice his caring, soft tone of voice, the use of her name are really important here. This is really no different than Charlie Brown's opening question to Linus. But he doesn't lead with, you're crazy. He says, how can you know? How do you know, Katie, that you're trusting in something that is actually real? And the way he has approached her, the way he has gained her trust and built rapport are key. It gives him the chance to ask this rather probing question. Well, that's another good question because um, I could ask that of you of certain scientists and certain scientific findings even because um, to be honest, some of it's rigged. Um, how do you know what's not rigged and what is, you know? A couple of really important things here. Remember, he just asked her the question, how do you know, Katie, that you're trusting in something that is actually real? And there's a very important pause here. Neither one need, needs to fill that space. There's about 10 seconds of dead air here, which is really great. Anthony is comfortable with it because he knows that that question really hit her deep. She had already expressed a bit of doubt about Jesus listening to her, and she is really thinking. And Anthony gives her time to think. He doesn't feel the need to interject anything into that space. That's a lot of respect that he's giving her. And the fact that she's willing to really think about that question shows that she respects him as well. This is a real conversation. Now, there's a little bit of turn here because you can tell that she's uncomfortable. An indication of her discomfort here is that she gets a bit defensive. She tries to redirect the conversation into the validity of science by asserting that some science is rigged. She says, she asks, how do you know what is rigged and what, what is not rigged and what is? Does this sound familiar? Does this sound a little bit like Linus immediately jumping on Charlie Brown about Santa Claus? Sounds, that, but it sounds a little bit like that to me. Um, but is that your way of saying that you have the ability to test your trust in Jesus? Notice what is happening here. In her defensiveness, she tries to put Anthony on the defensive. She tries to essentially impugn science. And notice he doesn't take the bait. You know, it's very much like Linus lashing out with Santa Claus. Now, Charlie Brown didn't, didn't take that bait. But what, what did Charlie Brown do? He walked away from the conversation. He said we had denominational differences. Anthony does neither of those things. He does something that is very S.E. He comes back with a question. He says, is that your way of saying you have the ability to test your trust in Jesus? Very interesting. Very good question. Very good way of handling that somewhat confrontational uh, situation. No. You can't test everything in science either. Because some of the data is false. How do you know what's coming out at you that's true? You know what I mean? People falsify things all the time. But the thing that I'm getting at is I can't prove mine, but you can't prove yours 100% either. 
And trust is kind of a just, I mean, yeah, it's not something you can necessarily prove all the time. Now, it's perhaps worthwhile to, to, again, realize where we're at in the conversation. Anthony has essentially drilled down to faith as being the main reason for her God belief. And what he's trying to get her to assess for herself is whether faith is a reliable way of knowing what is true. And that's why he keeps on asking questions such as the one that led into this little segment. He said, is that your way of saying that you have the ability to test your trust in Jesus? And her reaction is what I call the Pee Wee Herman defense. You know, she essentially says, I can't prove mine, but you can't prove yours 100% either. So essentially, she's trying to impugn the methods of science as a way of somehow validating her method of trust. And notice what Anthony does. You know, she takes, a, again, a shot across his bow. And what does he do? He just pauses. It's a very important pause. It's almost a 10 second pause again. She had just fired across his bow, but he really wants her to think about her position at this point because she's kind of getting into that, I know you are, but what am I kind of a defense. From my understanding of science, if something's not true, the scientific method is designed to suss those things out so that right. if somebody was falsifying data, then they'd find them. They'd be able to find it. So there's a testing component, there's a, there's right. a review component, there's mm. this falsifiability component to it. Right. Again, remember what's happening here. She's trying to put her faith in Jesus on the same level as scientific research. And Anthony actually does call her out on this point, but in such a darn nice way. He points out, and again, he says, from what I understand about science, he points out the self-correcting mechanisms that are built into the scientific method and the importance of falsifiability. In fact, there, there's, there, there's one ticket to stardom in science, and that is to be able to falsify some previously thought truth. And when it comes to religion, there's just not that self-correcting mechanism. And she really has no recourse but to admit this. So, Do you have the ability to determine that what you're placing your trust in is actually not real, that it's not true? Do I have the ability to determine that? Well, from what I've been taught as a child till now, um, not really. Okay, so did you catch that? Anthony has asked essentially the same question as he asked before. Remember, he already asked, how do you know, Katie, that you are trusting in something that is actually real? But this time, he takes a falsifiability approach. He just explained how science has this self-correcting uh, falsifiability. And so he asks, her the same, he asks her the same question, but takes that falsifiability approach. Do you have the ability to determine that what you are placing your trust in is actually not real? that it is not true and she's thoughtful about it and she's honest about it and she says no she doesn't have the ability to know that it is not real either um, honestly it's just been what's kind of been fed to me and then I did trust in Jesus so I did believe it's real it's a belief it's not that you can a hundred percent 
prove it because he's invisible. He's around us, but he's invisible. I mean, you can't prove something that's invisible. Can we, you know, we know the air's there, it, and we know the wind's there. We see what it does, right? Through the trees, it blows through the trees, it does things. Blows the clouds around. That's kind of how I think of God. Like, he's there, you see, like, creation. I call this creation. I don't call it, you know, evolution. Okay, so remember that Anthony had asked her about the falsifiability of her belief, and she admitted that she can't prove that any of it is not true. And now she goes into, essentially, she falls back into her upbringing. She was told that she knew. She mentions that she was brought up this way, uh, and her belief as a child. Now she says that Jesus can't be proved because he is all around us, but invisible. And she tries to make an, an analogy that God is like the wind. Uh, we know that it is there. We can see its effects, such as leaves and clouds blowing, but we don't actually see it. And I think at some level, she realizes that she's kind of painting herself into a corner, um, that this analogy is a sort of a false analogy, that even though we can't see air, we can't see wind because... Um, you know, we, we, our eyes don't pick those and pick it up. We can actually prove that it is there. We can compress air. We can prove that there is something there and not nothing there. And I think that she's realizing that this analogy doesn't necessarily hold up. And so she makes a, a little, uh, she, you know, she, she tries to, I think, um, egg Anthony on by, by bringing up evolution. You know, she calls this creation and not evolution, perhaps. Uh, kind of flailing about and, and trying to get him to engage her in a little more of a debate as opposed to his continued questioning. And as you're going to see, he doesn't take the bait. It's a very interesting, you can tell kind of her level of discomfort by the way the conversation turns next. With those examples that you gave earlier of praying, going to the hospital, there was no way to really tell when you survived the, the car accident. Right. Maybe there were statistics to show that it happens all the time. So why are you going on this mission? Are you trying to prove that there's no God, or what What are you trying to prove here? Well, this is a very interesting exchange. Um, she had just made the analogy between God and the wind. And I think what Anthony was trying to do here was, and of course, you know, the street of epistemology, it's, it's not scripted, it's not uh, rehearsed. He is having this conversation in the moment. And I think what he was trying to do is he was trying to find a way to form a question that could help her to realize the falseness of the analogy she has just drawn in a kind way. Now, I, I, may, be, I, I may be inserting my own, my own ideas there because there's no way we'll ever tell what Anthony was actually going to say. He was starting to, starting to go in a particular direction, and she kind of cut him off with, you know, why, are, why are you going on this mission? Are you trying to prove that there is no God? Turns out there's really no agenda to street epistemology. Um, Anthony's not out to try to prove anything, and he's going to mention that here in his in his response. The only thing that street epistemology, if it's if it does have an agenda, it is the genuine desire on the part of the interviewer to peel back the reasons why why one believes the things that he or she believes. I'm just wondering I'm not, why you're personally doing this. I'm trying to take a neutral stance on mm -hmm. it. Okay. Because what I find, I don't know if I mentioned this, but what I find is that the beliefs that people hold, especially these deep ones right, like God's, right. mm -hmm. when I start asking questions, it tends to become apparent 
that mm. the reasons people are using to conclude that these things are true could be concluded a different way like could be something else is what you're saying right yeah gotcha. like for example you said something really interesting these beliefs were fed to you as a child they kind of were yeah and honestly like I've been doing <laughs> this for, a, for quite a while uh -huh. and it's very common for me to hear this from from Hindus and Muslims and mm. pagans they were a lot of them were fed it for by for as a child you know and some of them maybe not maybe not all pagans you know they just kind of go to that but can these beliefs that you're holding really be true if they're so largely dependent on what was fed to you as a kid so this is a nice honest open exchange here between the two of them um, where Anthony he explains his purposes and then he's also able to come back to upbringing remember he's been playing whack-a-mole between you know, she, she initially brought up the natural world and then she brought up personal experience and then we kind of went through scripture and faith and she had mentioned upbringing before but he has not yet directly addressed it despite the fact she brought it up so he asks can these beliefs that you're holding really be true if they are so largely dependent on what was fed to you as a child as a, as a kid and he also had also thrown in kind of an outsider test of faith there because he mentioned that he hears this from Muslims and Hindus as well so he's showing that upbringing quite often does have a huge impact on our belief systems but is there a way of assessing whether the belief is true just because we were taught it as a child and it had a large impact I think they can I don't think my parents would try to feed me something wrong but maybe they were deceived as well I mean there's a possibility mm -hmm. and I have looked into the possibility that you know I was taught as a kid that the Bible was 100% true but I've looked into the possibility of conspiracy theories and stuff like that whereas um, supposedly the Freemasons or whoever um, actually changed the Bible um, to like Revelation for example uh, have you read that no okay so um, it predicts a lot of different things and uh, a lot of those things are happening now actually and uh, I kind of it I think there might be a possible theory out there that the Freemasons actually changed that to make it so that Christians just kind of go with the flow, say, oh, this is just the end times, and they oh. don't try to stop it. You I know see, what I mean? I see, to pacify them or something. Right. So, so that's a possibility, too. Yeah. So we, well, this is sort of an odd section of the, the conversation. Um, now they've been talking about upbringing and whether um, just because you're raised a certain way, does that necessarily mean that it's true? And she doesn't directly admit that upbringing isn't necessarily a, a reliable pathway to knowing that a God belief is true. Uh, and she, you know, she mentions her parents and she just thinks that they wouldn't purposely deceive her. But then again, she also acknowledges that perhaps they were deceived as well. And she then kind of that deception on a personal level, she tries to then go off and, and kind of build, talk about a deception on a, on a grander scale. Because uh, she starts talking kind of in a weird territory about Masons and conspiracy theories and such. Um, and we're going to see that Anthony sort of sees that things could be going off into the weeds. So he tries to pull things back and really conclude things here in the next section. 
Let just me just say, you know. we, we've talked about, and we've hit our five, but uh, we, okay. we, we talked about so many different beliefs. Right. And I guess what I'd like to perhaps leave you with is okay. this question. Whether you think prayer works or you have the ability to survive terrible car accidents or right. that that you are trusting in something that, like a God that really exists. Mm -hmm. Or these other things that you've just mentioned too. Right, right. If a person doesn't have a way to test those things, should they be confident that the belief is really true? Now, I should have mentioned earlier that these conversations are timed to be five minutes long. Anthony uh, tries to respect the, the time of his interlocutor, so uh, the timer is well past. Uh, so he's trying to wrap up. And he and also redirect and kind of get things back from out of the weeds. Uh, so he closes with the question: If a person doesn't have a way to test those things, and he, what by that he means prayer, miracles, and all the different things they've discussed, should they be confident that the belief is really true? That's a really good street epistemology question. And that's that's really the, the core of it. And notice, you know, the, the goal here is not to get her to abandon her belief on the spot. Even if she doesn't abandon her belief on the spot, the goal here is to put a pebble in the shoe. Have her really think about why she believes the things that she so confidently asserted were true. I guess it depends on the person because um, that's a hard question. I don't know because honestly, I can't test mine, you know, I can't just test it other than really believing in my heart and really knowing that there's got to be something greater because you're just writing down the negatives here. I can't. You said you were unable to test it? No, you're not able to test it, but, um, it's just, it's a belief that I have, you know, and um, sometimes I question it, and I've been questioning it a lot lately, you know. Is Katie great or what? Uh, it, I don't think that every interviewee is as honest and as open as Katie is, and that really, that's what makes this such a good conversation. And notice right off the top of this, that there's a good 10-second pause. You know, he has just asked her, if a person has, doesn't have a way of testing those things, should they be confident that the belief is really true? And she really thinks about it. Ten seconds, just thinking about it. And then she admits that she can't test it. She can only believe it in her heart, that there is something greater. And I think at this point she's starting to realize that she's believing in belief more than anything else. And it's hard to question something like that when it comes to... Why am I getting emotional? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just feel like everything I've learned as a child, you know, it just kind of, I question it now and it scares me because I don't know what to do next sometimes, you know? And if science is the answer, well, what's the big fucking meaning of living, right? What is the big meaning? I mean, there's got to be a greater plan, because if there's not a greater plan, why are we here? We just live, we die, and what's the point? So I've got to believe in a greater plan, you know what I mean?
If I had some <laughs> tissue, I'd offer no, it okay. to you. <laughs> I mean, I've got to believe in something, or at least somehow make this world a better place. It's so sad to live in. There's just so much sadness and death and horrible things that happen, and I just feel like somebody's got to do something about it, but, and the only, there are different groups, you know, that are doing things about it, but I've always come back to Christianity because I've held those beliefs and also because I feel like, oh, I don't know, just, I just feel like it's important to do something great in this world and um, I feel like Jesus might be the answer and so, I don't know, that's about it. I appreciate your, your honesty. I'm Okay, so in this section, she starts to cry a little bit. In fact, and he's very empathetic and you know, offers her a tissue. But she says, everything I learned as a child, I question it and it scares me. And she seems to need a bigger meaning, a bigger plan. In fact, she may be one of those people who needs her belief to keep her psychologically healthy and to prevent an existential crisis. And that's something that, that you need to be aware of when you're doing street epistemology is that Yes, you are peeling back. You're causing people to examine why they believe some of the core things, some of the thing, some of the beliefs that make up their identity. And for some people, this is going to cause a real existential crisis. And I think Anthony has done a good job being very gentle, very understanding, and very compassionate in this conversation. Sorry. And um, no, no, no. It's, it was a wonderful talk. I, I don't normally say this on my talks, but I think it's important to at least mention it. There's a growing community of people that don't believe in any gods, and they do find a tremendous amount of meaning. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm good. I've got a card. <laughs> okay. Thanks. It's got my contact information on there. Okay. Can you, you blur out my face, please? Of course. Like, for real? Sure. Okay, are you being honest with me, or are you just saying you'll blur it out? I don't even know if I'll use the footage, but if okay. I just decide to, then of course I'll blur it out. Alright, thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> I don't know why I got so emotional there. I just... I don't know. I've had uh, lots of talks, because I've been doing this for a while, and sometimes it does go emotional because sometimes people are faced with the possibility that they might be believing something that's not true. Right. And that's, that's a tough thing to deal with. There are organizations mm -hmm. that are designed to help people that are going through that questioning phase, that are doubting or you know, right. that are challenging the beliefs that they were raised with. Okay. So there are communities out there for, for people that are doing that. But I admire people that do it. Mm. I do because it's it's a tough thing. It's a it tough is. thing to to address a belief that you might have thought for the longest time. Yeah, like I even go to a church right now over here, and I'm just kind of like I don't know. Um, like I like it. It's just I mean I still. I still question, you know? I go to the church and I try to sing the songs, I try to really worship God, but I haven't felt like I've been really in tune with Him in a while. So, I don't know. 
It's hard to really tell sometimes. So. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much. I really yeah. enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I enjoyed crying. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you have a good day. Okay. You too, Katie. Bye-bye. Okay, so the conversation essentially wraps here, and I hope you can kind of get in Anthony's tone of voice, the words that he chooses, how very empathetic he is. And he acknowledges how tough it is to question childhood beliefs. Now, I know some would criticize Anthony for bringing her to tears, but notice he didn't make her cry because he, he wanted to bait or shouted her down. He had a very genuine conversation with her that, at its core, aims to help her lead a more honest and genuine life. And that ultimately is the goal of street epistemology. It's not to win a debate. It's not to, to have somebody admit that they're wrong. It doesn't even claim that, that there is a right or a wrong, but it does aim to make people who are very, very certain of a belief examine why they are so certain and whether the, 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 the reasons and the methods they use to establish that level of certainty really justify the level of certainty. Very emotional talk there with Katie. When we first started off, she was explaining that well, if you look around, you can see design. Look at the look at the look at the trees. Look at an eye. You can see that complexity, and there has to be design. Everything couldn't have just started from a bang. When I asked if those could be explained to her satisfaction, she said that she'd still believe. She mentioned that she was taught one way, and that was the Christian way. And then she mentioned that she was involved in a car accident and then went to the hospital and prayed. But those times where that happened, she didn't have the ability to know for sure that it was really her God. But she said that she trusted in Jesus. And I think that was probably the closest we got to her explaining that she believes in something because of faith. She never said faith, but she came awfully close. And I think she was hinting at that when she said that she just trusted in Jesus because it was fed to her as a child. Now, at one point, and this is going to sound a little strange because of the emotional ending there, but at one point, I started to get the feeling that she was becoming hostile, subtly hostile to me, because at one point she says something like, are you only writing down the negative stuff? <laughs> Which I, I never really looked at it that way, that it would be perceived that I was just jotting down things that were negative, but they were just things that were coming up in the conversation. And then she was watching me write that down and then thinking about it as I was jotting it down and then wondering... Why am I only writing down the bad stuff? Uh, that ended on a very emotional note. She started to cry. That's happened only a couple of times. I'm, I'm remembering now that she said that she was dizzy on the trail and left early. I hope this isn't perceived like I was trying to take advantage of her physical state. And then if you recall, I did something that I don't normally do, which when we're doing street epistemology, there's a, there's a complaint that we're proselytizing for atheism, that we're... We're trying to convert everyone to atheists. So I was a little reluctant to offer her resources that are available to people that are questioning. But it seemed appropriate in this case. So if anyone has a problem with that, that's just tough because I felt like she needed it. And I'm glad that I mentioned it. And she has my card and she can email me if she wishes to speak again. Okay, so in this closing section, Anthony debriefs the conversation. Um, 
And you notice that he does keep a clipboard, in addition to his timer, he keeps a clipboard with him and he jots little notes down uh, during the course of the conversation, which helps him to debrief it afterward. And what's interesting, you know, and again, for him, this is always a learning process. Not only is he learning from the people he's speaking to about the reasons for their belief. And again, if someone had a really convincing reason, I think Anthony would perhaps change his position. That's the part of the street of a small, it's a two-way street. The interviewer must always be prepared to accept new information, new evidence from the interviewee. So you know, that's one reason why he, he kind of keeps the clipboard. Um, now it was interesting that when he jots the little notes down, that she did at one point take it uh, that he was just writing down the negatives. You know, that it, it was a way of, that she became sort of defensive. And so not only is he trying to learn, um, get information about why they believe what they believe, but he's also always refining his technique. He had never considered the fact that someone could perhaps view his jotting of notes as being, you know, that he's, he's writing down, you know, ammunition uh, that he can use against them. So that was just, you know, very interesting. Uh, for him, it's a, it's a, it's, he's self-reflective. Uh, it's an iterative process for him. Now he does mention in there in their conversation, he's talking about the different reasons she used for her for her belief, and you know, nature and upbringing, and and he mentions faith. Now notice he never really got a chance to pursue her on the topic of faith. He never used really the outsider test for faith, which is essentially uh, using the line of questioning. Well, you know, faith is the is the way that you uh, justify your belief. What about the Muslim or the Hindu or the or the ancient Greek who used faith to justify their belief in their gods? How if if that if many people use the same method, faith, to come to different conclusions, then what does that tell us about the reliability of the method itself? That's the outsider test for faith. He really didn't get a chance to to pursue um, that line of questioning. So that's essentially the conversation. Um, now, like I said, I gave this presentation at the, the UU in January of 2017, and it did. It prompted a, a really lively discussion afterward. In fact, we had to kind of wrap it up before we were done because my, my wife and children had been more than patient with me, and uh, they wanted to, to head out. But at the UU, one of the questions was, you know, what's the whole point of this? You know, because she, in, in early on in the conversation, she kind of says that she's been having doubts. You know, so she started out questioning and winds up questioning. And the person in the, in the congregation wondered, well, you know, why do this then? Um, and to me, that's exactly the point, is that she is continuing to question. Rather than being certain, she is questioning and she's learned um, that some of the reasons why she, some of the answers she has given in the past, you know, that, oh, she was brought up with this, oh, that nature shows it, those aren't necessarily good answers, and that she should continue to pursue the questions. Again, I don't think that the world has ever suffered from being too rational or too self-reflective. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.